On behalf of National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations Founding President and CEO, Dr. John Duke Anthony, welcome. Thank you for joining this discussion with leading specialists about future energy trends and their implications. The National Council is a nonprofit, non-governmental, educational organization based in Washington, D.C. It is a 501c3 public charity. Contributions and support of the Council's bridge-building work are welcomed and appreciated. Joining the program today are Dr. Shahab Karan, Philip Cornell, and Colby Connolly. The National Council extends its thanks to these specialists for lending us their views and insights in this discussion. We will shortly turn over the floor to Colby for his moderating today's session. If you are watching the program live, we welcome your questions for the specialists that can be submitted via email to questions at ncusar.org. Again, the email is questions, plural, at ncusar.org. Viewers are encouraged to submit inquiries and we will do our best to ensure that as many as possible are raised. Again, thank you for joining the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations for this program. We will now welcome Colby Connolly as today's moderator. Colby is a senior research analyst for energy intelligence and a non-resident scholar with the Middle East Institute's program on economics and energy. Colby, the floor is yours. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. And thanks to the National Council as well for hosting us for what I'm sure is going to be a really great discussion. Um, you know, more often than not, it can kind of feel as though conversations like this end up um, really revolving almost entirely around renewable energy when it comes to the, the future of the Mideast or its approach to the energy transition. Um, and, and even within that, a lot of the discussion is around solar power. Um, and, and we'll doubtlessly talk about that and, and many other things today. Um, but, you know, probably a part of the, the reason for that might be due to the fact that when it, it comes to energy production in the Mideast and North Africa, we really tend to train a lot of our attention on national oil companies or NOCs. Um, and, and these are firms that we really don't think about, at least not for a lot of history, as having been at the forefront of developing new renewables capacity. Um, but, you know, even now that's really beginning to change. Um, most of the major NOCs in the region have some kind of renewable energy targets by now, even if they don't have some sort of small capacity. Um, and, and a lot of the targets that they've adopted are also really conducive to um, national uh, net zero goals as well, um, you know, wherever they, they may have been set. Um, you know, as, as a, a good example of that, I doubt it's really coincidental that uh, Saudi Arabia's national net zero target is set for 2060, and its NOC, Saudi Aramco, has a 2050 uh, net zero target. These NOCs are, are clearly going to be huge parts of, of the transition for a lot of countries in the region. Um, but, you know, there's, there's also been some sort of limited progress. There's been, over the last couple of years, a lot of announcements to the longer term effect, like those around net zero, but also shorter and, and medium term targets as well. Um, some of which have translated into progress and, and some which haven't. So it, it'll be really interesting to, um, to kind of dig down into some of that today as well. Um, and, you know, as a result, we'll, we'll see a lot of ambition over the next few years, especially with respect to targets that have been set for the end of the decade, 
um, to make progress in this area. But this is advancing against a backdrop of a region where energy demand is, is still growing. Um, oil use is expected to increase in a lot of the region this year. Um, you know, Saudi Arabia, for example, in, in 2022, broke a couple of different records on the amount of crude it used in the, the, the power sector. Um, so there's there there are seemingly some contradictions here um, that'll that'll be great to get into as well. And and we're also having this discussion um, in the same year that that the UAE is hosting COP28, which is certainly a very significant development for how um, producing countries kind of impact the transition narrative as well. Um, so we're we're in for some certainly some interesting few years ahead. And while I always feel like this phrase gets overused quite a bit. Um, we we have a lot of moving parts to look at, so that that's a good place for me to stop, I think, and and introduce the pair of experts that are joining the discussion today. Um, and that, I'll start with uh, Dr. Shahab Karan, who uh, is an investor and entrepreneur and a seasoned executive in the semiconductor, power, and clean tech sectors. He founded and and ran several private companies and served as uh, an executive or board member at several public companies. Uh, in clean tech, he founded and ran Petra Solar, where he developed leading edge technologies and launched the largest solar electric project in the world in 2009. Uh, he led the development and build out of a major smart city project in Bahrain, uh, solar and smart grid at Saudi Aramco's headquarters and smart solar projects in Jordan. Uh, he currently serves as the president and CEO of Power Edison and executive chairman of EV Edison, two companies he co-founded focused on providing energy storage and electric vehicle or EV charging solutions. Power Edison is the world's largest mobile battery storage uh, system, and EV Edison is building the uh, largest EV supercharging hub located in metropolitan New York. Dr. Karan served as president of Advanced Solutions at Sun Edison and served as president of strategic development at NRG. Uh, he serves as an independent director on the boards of NN Inc. and Vital Energy, and he also serves on the advisory boards of the Charles Edison Fund, uh, the Edison Innovation Foundation, and the boards of Enernal and New York Energy Week. Uh, he holds a PhD in electrical engineering from the City University of New York and completed his executive management education at Harvard Business School. Uh, also with us today is Mr. Philip Cornell, who is a principal at Economist Impact uh, and the global lead on energy and sustainability. He, um, excuse me, he directs research programs for companies, multilateral finance institutions, uh, foundations and governments seeking analysis and policy advice. He's also a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council Global Atlantic Council of Global Energy Center, excuse me, uh, where he specializes in energy economics, foreign policy, and global energy markets, and chairs the Clean Energy Ministerial Initiative. Uh, prior to joining the Economist Group, uh, he held several senior advisory and management positions at the World Bank, Saudi Aramco, IEA, and NATO. Uh, held uh, royal uh, research positions at the Na Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, the Royal United Services Institute in London, and the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University. Uh, he's also the author of various public works on international energy security, economics, and governance, and holds master's degrees with distinction in international economics from the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and really received his bachelor's degree in international relations from Stanford. Uh, so certainly a very long list of, of credentials for our experts today. 
Um, and with that, Shahab, I think uh, I, I really want to turn it over to you to get started and kind of perhaps uh, walk us through your initial view of how the, the transition is sort of progressing around the region and uh, just sort of generally what kinds of things are on your radar. Thank you, Kobe. So um, the the area is uh, in in the Middle East, uh, looking at a new new role, if you wish, in in the energy supply globally. Um, and historically, it had tight uh, linkage to customers, especially in the United States, that drove policy, that drove collaboration, and so on. And and the facts uh, nowadays uh, is that there isn't that uh, commerce, if you wish, between the supply of energy products that are coming out of the Middle East and the U.S. consumption. And uh, so we see in the Middle East now that uh, Middle East is, is tightening <clears throat> relationships with people who need, need those products, especially in hydrocarbon products today. And um while there's still a search vis-a-vis uh, -vis energy transition to what role uh, the Middle East would play, whether through the export of renewable fuels or through the uh, investment of capital or surplus capital. Um, I have some slides. I don't know if this is the right time to, to share those slides and, and add some color or happy to do that after. Uh, yeah, we, we can bring them in now if you like, certainly. I'll be sharing my screen. It's a second screen if I if I look to the right. Yeah, so, um, and I've, I've shared some of those remarks at a, at a previous uh, event uh, last year that we were at together. Um, and, and thinking about uh, the energy transition, thinking about energy policies, and specifically as the US and the Arab world are concerned, it really is driven by interests um, more than permanent friendships or, or, or uh, other type of relationships. And uh, it is worth looking into what uh, brought the US and the Arab world closely together, what changes are happening, especially in regard to the energy transition, and what can be seen over the horizon that can reignite a tight relationship, tight collaboration, uh, and friendship. Uh, one uh, set of facts that uh, are critical is the fact that the U.S. Uh, switched from being a major importer of fuels, hydrocarbon fuels, oil, uh, gas, and so on, from the Middle East, to being a major uh, supplier, a major producer. If you look at if we look at the screen, um, and I know Phil gave me more updated data beyond 2020, is that the U.S. is really a net exporter of uh, petroleum products. Uh, and the U.S. has not imported practically any practical quantities of Middle East petroleum for almost 10 years now. So absent of that tight linkage and relationship in commerce, how do we look at uh, the new relationships, how do we look at that, especially with, with the energy transition? The U.S. not only is sufficient, self-sufficient with trail petroleum products, trail products are primarily used for transportation because of the high energy density associated with them. And 
the U.S. is not only importing those, its local consumption of liquid fuels is also changing. So the transportation sector, as we know, is being revamped, is being reinvented to become either electrified or using some renewable fuels. Uh, this is a chart that just shows by 2030, almost 30% of the new vehicle sales in the U.S. would be electric. Well, that means the demand for liquid fuels uh, will be going away, not in a small incremental fashion, but really as a mega trend. So the U.S. is not importing petroleum from the Middle East, and the U.S. internally is changing the fuel mix, walking away from, from liquid fuels. So what does that mean for the U.S. Arab? Uh, policy and specifically around energy and energy transition. There's another fact to deal with, uh, and that is that we are oceans apart between the uh, Middle East and the U.S. As we can see from the map, uh, it is more natural, it is more economical for the Middle East products uh, or services to be linked with entities that are either closer or that need them. Uh, if we're talking about electric uh, grid, for example, you can envision electric grid between Europe and the Middle East being practical, but an electrical grid, say, between the U.S. and the Arab world is really not, not that practical. So the fact that we're oceans apart causes us to pause and think what elements, what pillars uh, can be put in place to underpin new policies, and especially for the energy transition. Um, there are a lot of areas that, that come to mind, but frankly, um, it is really hard to think about something similar to what we had with, with liquid fuels or with petroleum. Um, obviously, collaboration at the global level when it comes to uh, greenhouse gas targets, like you mentioned, the UAE is hosting international events around uh, climate change and global warming. Uh, you have examples where collaboration can happen at the capital and financial level. We've seen the UAE commit to about $100 billion to be invested in the energy transition section or sector in the United States, as referred to as space, uh, the partnership is referred to as space. So capital can transcend oceans. Policy can transcend oceans. Uh, but what else can be put in place into action? Uh, that is really practical, that can be underpinned by true set of economics that are sustainable for many years to come. Technology comes into play or comes to mind uh, as the U.S. has a number of advanced technologies when it comes to the new energies or the energy forms that are required for the energy transition, you know, clean uh, technologies. Uh, or uh, if we think about, I have on the screen, some of the renewable fuels uh, I think the renewable fuels between, uh, as an export import between the U.S. and Middle East is going to be hard, and I'll, I'll show a slide uh, that supports that fact. However, when it comes to equipment and technologies, uh, I think that's an area that's ripe for collaboration. Challenge is the dollar value of the scale of that uh, intercommerce is not going to be anywhere near what we used to have in terms of petroleum exports and intercommerce. Um, this is a, a little bit busy slide, but it does uh, show some uh, data that uh, the reason 
let me see if I can, uh, if there's a way to use a mouse here or a pointer. Can you see, can you see the pointer? Yes, I can see that. Okay. So primarily, why did, why was petroleum a, a successful uh, product for trade? It's due to the fact that if you look at diesel, gasoline, or petroleum in, in this area, it's the fact that it does pack high volumetric energy and energy density. So by volume or by energy content, you get a lot per cubic feet or per barrel. And so you are able to pack a lot of energy in a tanker and ship it from the Middle East and bring it to the US. And that is the same reason petroleum was used for transportation because you're able to put a lot of energy in a small volume, use it for transport. Uh, if we look at the new um, technologies or new renewable fuels or look at, you'll see that they're far less as an energy carrier than liquid fuels. If you go all the way down today to, for example, the most advanced form of technology in batteries is lithium ion batteries. You can see it's very small when it comes to these densities, either by volume or by energy, get to liquid fuels. So even if you thought, let me pack electrons, for example, in batteries in the Middle East and bring them to the US, it's not a practical aspect. So, so this is just a, a chart to show um, how you know many of the new solutions don't support transport of that energy over long distances. Now, having said that, um, we see that, uh, let me see, there's another slide I might, but um, this one. So having said that, we know that the US is electrifying transportation and electrifying transportation, that means a lot of batteries that are going into vehicles. And frankly, the US is electrifying things beyond transportation as well. Uh, we see, for example, in New York City, there's something called Local Law 97 that uh, aspires to turn New York City into a zero carbon city by electrifying heating, electrifying cooking, electrifying anything where every carbon products were burned before. So electrifying things means more electricity, more batteries to be sustainable when uh, renewable energy is not being produced. And we can see uh, a number of market leaders in battery supply that are just experiencing massive growth in production. I mean, compared over a few years from 2021 and looking at 25, orders of magnitude higher than previous capacity. So massive explosion of production. The US IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act has a number of incentives for local manufacturing. So the US today uh, is, looking for massive supply from materials, uh, technologies, uh, establishing a battery industry that would enable the energy transition. Uh, I dug a little bit deeper into what can be done between, for example, just this is an example in the battery space because I operated in battery space and we look at it all the way from upstream to downstream. And we noticed that uh, type of chemistry for lithium ion called LFP, uh, which uh, is, has lithium iron phosphate is becoming more and more the dominant chemistry for lithium ion batteries. And 
So you need lithium, you need iron, you need phosphate. And if you look at the Middle East, uh, I gathered some of this data, we noticed that on the phosphate side, uh, if you look at the top 10 phosphate producers in the world, uh, you'll notice that five out of the 10 tend to be in the Middle East and North Africa as Arab countries. You see Morocco, you see Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Tunisia. Uh, when you also look at lithium reserves around the globe, which is, you know, it's kind of the new gold or the new petroleum, uh, you'll see that in terms of reserves, uh, Chile is, is the leading uh, country in, in the world. Uh, Australia comes uh, as a second. But a very interesting fact is that uh, the Dead Sea uh, in the Middle East holds uh, almost uh, 5.4 million metric tons of lithium. And it's such a high density, it's almost 300,000, higher 300,000 ppm or high, meaning 10 times saltier than the oceans and the seas, and has a lot of lithium. So it can come as a major, like second reserve around the globe, the lithium that is um, really needed to fuel the energy transition uh, in regard to batteries. Uh, Saudi Arabia has major mineral deposits in uh, what's called the Arabian Shield through to, due to geological formations. So this is just a glimpse of um, with the energy transition, looking at the new technologies, looking at the new minerals, looking at the new elements that are needed to enable the energy transition, we see that the Arab world can have a role. Uh, you need to develop new technologies, new businesses, uh, but nonetheless, uh, there are roles. It is not the traditional petroleum export, but it is the new technologies, uh, especially around batteries. And I'm confident that there are other areas uh, that would be similar to batteries. Well, this, this concludes my uh, slides and uh, looking forward to any uh, comments and, and questions throughout this. Okay. Well, thank you very much. And I, I think, you know, before we we get into too many questions, Phil, maybe I can I can kick it to you at this point um, for for your views on some of this outlook as well, and and some of what you'd see is probably I'd say the most pressing um, you know energy issues in in U.S. Mid East relations, which probably have a few individual carve outs. But how how would you categorize some of those and 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 sort of place them in the order of of importance? Sure. Uh, well, thanks very much, uh, Colby, and thanks to the council uh, for hosting this discussion. Um, you know, I think what we really took away from Shihab's slides and the presentation is, you know, what a potential this region holds to be a major supplier of uh, the kind of minerals that we're going to need for the energy transition. Uh, and also, I would say for the technologies that are going to be required. I mean, when it comes to things like solar production, the region and particularly the Gulf region uh, has some really of the lowest production costs uh, and connection costs for solar energy today. Uh, and so there's the potential is clearly there. I would say what it's really linked to, though, from the short term to the long term transition question uh, is the relationship with oil and revenues uh, to the region uh, in the near term. Uh, and I think we have to think of the region always as two very different blocks. There are the major oil producers, uh, 
focused in places like the Gulf, which have certainly seen a major windfall uh, in revenue over the past year and a half as a result of emerging from COVID and also the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, which has caused significant volatility in the market, but caused the most profitable year uh, for companies like Saudi Aramco uh, and led to a serious confidence uh, in the region in terms of its energy future. But on the other side, there's also the block of Arab countries who are massive importers of fossil fuels uh, and have seen the volatility and high costs over the past year and a half, two years, uh, as a major detriment to their balance sheets uh, and an energy security concern. And for there, I'm thinking about uh, countries like Morocco, which imports something like 90% uh, of its energy uh, needs uh, or of its fossil fuel needs. Uh, also countries like Egypt, which is a big importer of fossil fuel products uh, around things like fertilizers, uh, and also countries you know, that are facing um, weak uh, energy security situations, particularly places like Lebanon, uh, the Palestinian territories, uh, and 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 Iraq. So I think that we need to consider what are these uh, what what are these different situations, uh, and what does energy transition uh, mean? How does it look different uh, for these two different groups of countries? For countries like Saudi Arabia, uh, the energy transition uh, has been, I would say, rocky in terms of the deployment of renewable energy vis-a-vis -vis very ambitious plans. So since uh, the beginning of the last decade, but especially since 2016 uh, and the implementation or the release of their national transformation plan and vision uh, Saudi Vision 2030, uh, we've seen very ambitious targets to deploy renewable energy. Uh, and for example, you know, under that 2023 target, so this year, were something on the order of 22 gigawatts uh, of renewable energy that were expected to be deployed. To give you an idea of the gap with reality, about a tenth of that is actually operating at the moment. Um, and you know that's on top of even bigger uh, uh, ambitions that have been sort of announced and then quietly gone by the wayside. I would put at the top of that list the 2018 announcement uh, by the Saudis with SoftBank to deploy 200 gigawatts. So again, think about that's another order of magnitude higher uh, than even uh, so 220 and 200 uh, as, as an ambitious uh, goal. So I think there are real questions about why we are uh, seeing these sort of uh, difficulties in deployment on the ground, uh, and what's the purpose uh, for a country like Saudi Arabia or the UAE? Uh, uh, Deploying renewable energy and engaging in the energy transition serves two principal goals. Uh, uh, one is uh, freeing up uh, oil for export, particularly at a moment when oil prices are so high uh, and are expected to stay high for the medium term. Uh, this is what I would call and what's been discussed as the feast before the famine for oil producers, meaning that over the long term, we're likely to see eventually uh, a peak in oil demand. It's probably something like a decade away. But as the energy transition continues uh, uh, in the long term, there's going to be a reduced uh, 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 capacity and price of, of oil. Now, the Middle East producers will be the last man standing with the cheapest and the cleanest oil production on the market. Uh, but they know that they need to capitalize uh, on a strong market while it's there. So producing renewable energy can free up oil, which is otherwise used domestically. In the Saudi case, that's something like 
3.3, 3.4 million barrels per day of internal consumption, and about a million barrels of which uh, is just for uh, oil generated power uh, power generation. So some of the least efficient power generation and something that the Saudi government is trying to wean the country off of. Um, so in terms of just its internal consumption, uh, despite energy efficiency efforts, despite uh, deploying renewable energy, uh, the current domestic consumption of oil and fossil fuels in the region is simply something that's unsustainable. Uh, so those efforts to engage in transition are directly related to the, uh, the bottom line uh, and meeting uh, uh, sort of budget requirements for, for, for oil revenue uh, in the short to medium term. For a country like Morocco, on the other hand, uh, engaging in the energy transition is sort of an existential one about energy security. So this is a country, again, which uh, imports uh, large amounts of uh, oil and petroleum products, uh, some of which, for example, have been coming from Russia. Uh, there's been a complicated uh, energy security situation in the last few years, and particularly uh, uh, since the Russian invasion. So uh, Morocco has continued to import uh, Russian diesel, of course, under the price cap. And let's remember that uh, one of the reasons uh, why um, uh, and we can get into that in a moment, but one of the reasons in the short term why we're seeing OPEC production cuts uh, is a question about demand, and that has to do with the efficacy of the Russian price cap uh, on uh, global markets in terms of keeping Russian oil flowing, uh, and so supply staying at a pretty high level while uh, while demand falls off. But again, in the Moroccan case, both for, the, for oil uh, and also uh, for gas in particular, uh, which is subject to rocky relations with the Algerians, uh, a sort of pieced together uh, deal of importing LNG via Spain. Uh, their energy security right now is something that's of, of grave concern. So as they ramp up their energy transition on things like wind, uh, where there's some very high capacity, uh, engaging also in more solar uh, outlays, and of course, trying to maintain their hydro capacity even during a time of drought, that is a much more, uh, it, it, it comes from a different place in terms of what the drivers of that are. Uh, so I just want to sort of put that in context. Um, to go back to kind of OPEC politics and what's happened uh, just this year and bring in sort of the U.S., uh, what is, I think, uh, you know, really striking are the couple of OPEC production cuts that we've seen uh, last month, but also um, but also back in October. And so they caused, um, uh, I would say, uh, a lot of uh, discord uh, between uh, Washington and what uh, it had considered some of its closest Arab allies, uh, particularly in the face of efforts by Washington uh, to up oil production uh, in the face of Russian um, uh, sanctions and trying to curtail uh, Russian uh, energy revenues. Um, again, this was before sort of the price cap had been introduced, uh, and the fear was that a lot of Russian production would be locked in. Uh, and so this, uh, I think, again, caused a lot of consternation in Washington and sort of uh, exposed a shift uh, in the relationship between Washington and key allies in the region uh, that had been going on uh, at least since the middle of the decade, uh, and one that I think had caught some people in Washington a little bit off guard, the degree to which uh, Saudi Arabia and parts of the Gulf uh, had developed and the outlook had shifted uh, during COVID and the Trump administration uh, to a degree where, uh, you know, a lot of uh, 
people, let's say, within uh, GCC administrations and particularly in Riyadh, uh, uh, you know, think of the U.S. continuing to act as friends, uh, but not necessarily as allies. And I think that goes to the first slide that Shihab put up there uh, about relations between states being based in interests uh, rather than in sort of, you know, long-term uh, emotional relationships. But again, it's one that certainly caught uh, the US off guard and sort of signaled uh, a new Saudi geopolitical strategy to triangulate between some of the major powers, um, partly for energy reasons. Um, again, in an environment of high oil revenues uh, and a great deal of confidence, but also in terms of how it looks at its future development within the context of the energy transition. So that means looking to uh, Asian partners in particular, China, uh, also looking to Russia, its OPEC plus partners, and uh, also to other partners, you know, from uh, Israel to India uh, to the Japanese for technology support around those parts of the economy where it really sees uh, a growth future. So I think for them, maintaining sort of current oil uh, balances and diplomacy uh, is important, again, in that short to medium term where they can benefit uh, from uh, the revenues in order to drive forward their economic transformation plans, uh, but also thinking about uh, what kind of partnerships are delivering the uh, technology support uh, and the cooperation and the investment uh, to be able to forward their uh, energy transition and sort of wider digitalization uh, and new economy uh, goals. So um, I think that uh, uh, what we're, uh, uh, as we move forward to the OPEC cut that happened also this year, um, there is a geopolitical aspect, certainly, but I think that there's also a genuine uh, debate to be had and a legitimate debate about what the demand for energy uh, is going to look like in the global economy over the next year. There's a huge amount of uncertainty on uh, the horizon around particularly two of the major markets, the U.S. and China. Uh, you know, we heard from the IMF this week during its spring meetings uh, that the likelihood of a hard economic landing in the U.S. Uh, has uh, boosted significantly. There continues to be inflation and therefore aggressive monetary policy, which is likely uh, to cause uh, a potential slowdown. Uh, and so we're going to have to see how that develops and how that uh, sort of reckoning within the U.S. economy and recession happens over the next quarter. And in China, um, you know, we've seen a, an emergence from COVID and a COVID closure, which masked a lot of structural weaknesses that were already ongoing inside the Chinese economy uh, and causing significant slowdown, which was revealed in uh, its official forecast for growth in 2023 at something like 5%, which is extremely low, not just in the context of previous Chinese growth numbers over the past decade, but particularly in an opening year. Uh, so coming out of COVID and a return uh, to, uh, to, to sort of um, uh, open economic activity throughout the country, uh, which sort of seen growth significantly higher uh, than what had been sort of the standard growth trajectory uh, in pre-COVID times. And we're not seeing that. So between those two things, I think that there is a legitimate concern about what demand uh, is going to look like. That being said, uh, the cuts, uh, the most recent cuts by OPEC were certainly um, caught a lot of people off guard, uh, partly because uh, those it's it's not yet clear what those kind of e economic impacts are going to be. So 
it seems for some people that there was uh, it was kind of premature in terms of uh, understanding what the what the economy is going to look like, um, but also because of the internal politics that are happening within OPEC. So we need to remember that there's OPEC, there's OPEC plus, which includes the Russians and and, and some other partners, uh, but. Uh, the main players within OPEC are those which are the producers with the main spare capacity. And we're really thinking about Kuwait, the UAE, and especially Saudi Arabia. Um, I would say that what's driving, let's say, uh, uh, that relationship is particularly what's happening between the UAE and Saudi Arabia. I think uh, within Abu Dhabi, there's, uh, I would say, more of a economic rationale. There's less desire to rock the geopolitical boat, particularly as it looks forward to hosting COP28 later in the year and continuing to show itself as a global partner uh, for the energy transition and for energy security and stability. Um, but at the end, it seems like the Saudis won out. So there is some underlying tension. Um, I would say that some of the questions about a a rift, or even there was a Wall Street Journal article earlier in the year uh, that discussed the possibility of UAE exiting from OPEC. Uh, it's probably not going to happen in the short term, but you can see that there's still a divergent, uh, di di diverging opinions uh, among OPEC partners about uh, what the future of policy uh, is is going to be, um, and uh, and and also about how that impacts their relationships with uh, both the U.S. and the other major powers, uh, and I'm thinking again about China uh, and and Russia. So um, I guess I you know I think that that outlook in the short term around the oil economy and how it's linked then. Uh, to energy transition um, is 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 really a key that I think is going to be driving some of these uh, debates and some of the progress that we see uh, uh, around around the transition and new technology. So I'm going to leave it there so that we can uh, move on to questions. Uh, but uh, but anyway, I think uh, thanks very much. Yeah, thanks, Phil. Um, you know, we are we are starting to get a couple of audience questions coming in. Um, the first one, um, you know, maybe is is kind of dovetails well with um, you know the, the 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 oil market discussion. But um, first question that came in is how many years in the future do you predict the decline of U.S. and global reliance on uh, natural gas? Obviously, not um, an extraordinary amount of um, uh, Mid East natural gas being imported into the U.S. But I guess in terms of the U.S.'s ability to kind of sustain itself as an exporter, along with some of these other larger countries in the region, what um, you know, some of some of that bleeds in. Um, so I don't know either either of you want to take a stab at that one. We've got a couple more as well, and and some of my own we can get into. So it's um, which whichever yeah. way you'd like to handle it. I think uh, so. Natural. We have to kind of think about what the different fuels are used for. So we said petroleum is primarily used for transportation. However, natural gas is primarily used for generating electricity. And it is, for example, in the U.S. competing with coal. So we see coal plants getting retired while gas plants getting built up. Gas uh, does help in what we call firming up the grid when renewable energy is not there. Uh, but we know renewable energy remains a very small percentage of electricity generation on the grid in the U.S. and frankly throughout the world. Uh, so I personally expect natural gas. I have. Uh, many, many more years of life, uh, at least 30, 40 more years, uh, or at least 
2050, maybe 2060, where we still have a, a very strong reliance in the US and globally on natural gas, simply because it is a complement to renewables. It is a lower, it does have a lower carbon footprint compared to coal. And we know places like China, India, many other places in the world, they're even still building coal plants. And so there is a role for natural gas to retire those and, and switch, switch them to a cleaner fuel. Uh, so natural gas, uh, in my opinion, will still have uh, many, many years as a viable supply of energy. Yeah. Um, and I would, I, you know, I would agree with that um, assessment. Um, I think, you know, we could talk about natural gas markets sort of globally, which has been severely impacted by uh, the Russian invasion, you know, natural gas, which is a much less fungible product than oil, uh, has seen a much higher shortfall because of its uh, reduced uh, uh, exports to Europe, uh, which are uh, mostly by pipe. Um, and so that caused, you know, a major spike uh, in natural gas prices and LNG prices last year. Uh, those have come down significantly uh, in Europe, but still remain uh, several times higher uh, than the five-year average. In the U.S., uh, again, shale gas production have seen uh, prices come down significantly uh, well below, actually, uh, pre-invasion levels. So natural gas at the moment continues to be, uh, a, a, you know, a, a relatively uh, a important uh, product for keeping the lights on and also for industrial uses and development. Um, uh, there are major efforts, uh, obviously, by um, uh, policymakers, and I'm thinking especially by multilateral development banks, to curtail financing for natural gas projects in other parts of the world. Uh, I think that that potentially causes a rift for developing countries where natural gas is a key part uh, of their development strategies. Um, and so always when we think about the energy transition, uh, the risk of demonizing one fuel or another um, can uh, look very different depending on where you're standing and where you are at your point of development. Uh, and I think we need to be mindful of that as we look to keep support for the energy transition broadly in place, particularly in places like the emerging markets and developing world uh, that are going to be such a big part of the, the issue. Now, in the Middle East, as Colby mentioned, uh, natural gas exports are relatively limited, and I'm thinking particularly in the Gulf countries. Their expansion of natural gas projects have been used specifically to meet domestic demand uh, and, again, lower that uh, reliance on uh, oil-fired generation uh, in order to free up more oil for export. But there has been uh, very limited uh, LNG uh, capacity that has been uh, that's come online, for example, in the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, instead, some of that uh, surplus gas is being used to forward uh, hydrogen. Uh, uh, um, uh, hydrogen strategies. So I'm thinking particularly about uh, blue hydrogen, which is gas fire or gas generated hydrogen uh, plus CCS, uh, of which uh, the Saudis have begun uh, exports uh, only a, a year or two ago. So there is a role there for domestically developed uh, uh, gas to supply external markets, but not directly as LNG. Uh, again, in those other parts of the Arab world that I had mentioned, natural gas remains a really important part 
part of the strategy uh, in Egypt, offshore production and in the East Mediterranean. Uh, offshore production of natural gas is a key element uh, of revenue and development um, uh, for not just Egypt, uh, now uh, in places like Lebanon, uh, now that uh, maritime territorial disputes have been settled largely with uh, American diplomatic support. So uh, it plays a, a key role in that part of the region. Uh, and, and, and also, I, I mentioned Morocco earlier, uh, facing this natural gas uh, crunch uh, because of relationships with Algeria um, and looking for new routes to bring natural gas into the European market now that it's uh, obviously facing a structural shortfall following the Russian invasion, including, for example, the Nigeria-Morocco pipeline, a huge and ambitious project to bring um, uh, uh, Gulf of Guinea gas and West African gas uh, to, to the European market via North Africa. So it's playing a very important role in global markets going forward, but a varied role in uh, Arab energy economies, depending on uh, which side of the, uh, whether we're on the east side or the west side, let's say. Great. Um, well, we also have a, a hydrogen question that came in, which I, I figured probably wouldn't take long. Um, whenever, whenever we're talking about the, the transition in relation to the Mideast, hydrogen never takes too long to come up. But, um, you know, the, the way the question is asked, I felt was important. And I, I kind of have a bit of my own part that I would, I would add to it, too. Um, but the question is, what sort of timeline is there before hydrogen can be an energy source that contributes meaningfully to global production and consumption? Um, and, and specifically with relation to the Mideast, too, I mean, something that I, I tend to think about is, um, you know, everyone's got a ton of projects they've announced. Obviously, some of them will eventually materialize and some of them won't. But, you know, there are some, some pretty big expectations about the development of the hydrogen market that, that under, I think underpin a lot of this capacity. Um, so I'd, I'd be curious to hear both of your views on, on what kind of risks some of these countries may be taking that are going in very heavily on, on hydrogen now um, that, you know, don't necessarily know uh, in, in great detail how the market is going to develop in the future. Um, Phil, I mean, you were just talking about this, so maybe we can come back to you and then, Shahab, we can go back over to you again. Sure. Um, well, look, uh, hydrogen is certainly very hyped recently. Um, and if you look at plans, uh, particularly from countries like Germany or Japan, hydrogen plays a very key role uh, in their energy transition strategies. Uh, I think we have to be careful uh, when we talk about what the market for hydrogen is realistically going to be. Um, you know, for the moment, uh, it's, you know, there's an established hydrogen market that's been around for something like 50 years. Usually uh, it's been produced uh, with fossil fuels. Um, but as we think about expanding those applications, uh, uh, it serves basically two major roles. I think the most obvious role is decarbonizing otherwise hard to abate industries, uh, places like uh, green steel or green cement, uh, heavily emitting uh, uh, industries where hydrogen can play a key role, and particularly green hydrogen or hydrogen that's uh, developed with renewable energy uh, can play a key role in decarbonizing those industries at a relatively high cost. So the cost of something like green hydrogen is still, depending on where it's produced, something like $4 to $10 or more uh, in terms of cost. 
Uh, one thing that the U.S. policy and the IRA has done uh, is offer an extremely generous subsidy or tax incentive uh, of about $3 per kilogram of green hydrogen. So it brings, if you're on the lower end of that scale, a $4 kilogram of green hydrogen down to $1, which is suddenly cheaper actually than even fossil fuel produced hydrogen otherwise and makes it a competitive and a viable option. And as a result, I think we're gonna see an expansion of demand for things like uh, electrolyzers, which are the key uh, technology to convert that renewable energy into hydrogen. Uh, and that sort of, economies of scale hopefully are going to start bringing down uh, those costs of green hydrogen to a point where they become uh, competitive. Even so, uh, the second major application, which is to export renewable energy from places uh, that are far flung from markets, uh, and I'm thinking about places like Oman, which uh, I'll talk about in just a minute, uh, that a potential to use renewable energy, create hydrogen, ship it to somewhere like Japan, and then uh, put it back into electricity uh, is an extremely inefficient supply chain. So I'm thinking back to uh, Shahab's graph about, you know, what, what are sort of the energy potential? Uh, that is a supply chain with a, a, a huge amounts of losses, and it's quite inefficient uh, and massive cost implications along, uh, along the chain. Uh, however, again, if we look towards uh, 2030, 2032, uh, it could be a viable option in some applications. And uh, if we can create a market, I would say some there are some key programs that are out there in alliances, such as something like the First Movers Coalition, which has been championed uh, by John Kerry and the U.S. government, alongside partners like the World Economic Forum. Uh, and those kind of programs to actually cr create and generate demand uh, in those key markets like hard to abate sectors um, could start to create potential where uh, the supply uh, is, is, is therefore meaningful. And some countries in the Middle East are really banking on this. And I mentioned Oman. So recently, uh, so as recently as February, March, uh, Oman closed uh, historic auctions for uh, hydrogen production um, uh, uh, areas. Uh, that were very well subscribed and, you know, various consortium of international companies from Shell to Continental, Indian companies, I mean, a really diverse set of investors um, have committed something like $60 billion to green hydrogen development in Oman. Uh, and it's, uh, and given uh, extremely favorable renewable energy potential alongside its relatively remote geographical position from major markets makes it the kind of place where this could be a viable part of the economy and in the transition. But again, I think we need to be realistic. Hydrogen is certainly no silver bullet uh, to replace fossil fuels or to engage the energy transition. Rather, it's going to play an important but probably pretty niche role uh, in the global energy economy even after 2030. Great. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. yeah, I agree with everything Phil said, and I would add um, hydrogen uh, was uh, also thought about as a fuel for uh, mobility for vehicles and uh, as a substitute to petroleum products. Uh, so there was a race between batteries and hydrogen, and I know if you track Elon Musk had kind of made a, a statement early on about hydrogen versus batteries, but I think uh, you see that Elon is right 
at least for the what we call light and medium duty vehicles. Uh, heavy duty vehicles, there's still a debate whether hydrogen is the right fuel or batteries. Uh, you know, think about the Tesla semis. And then if you go to aviation and you go to uh, the global shipping, uh, you know, tankers, ships, and so on, uh, is it a battery or is it uh, hydrogen? When we say hydrogen, you'll see, and I put the chart up on the screen, there's hydrogen in its pure form, which lacks the volumetric density. So you need much, much larger volume to transport the same amount of energy compared to other fuels. Uh, but there are other what we call hydrogen carriers. Uh, so methanol, ammonia have hydrogen in them, and they have, we call them hydrogen carriers. And you see, uh, for, for example, uh, Mosdar Aqua Power out of Middle East uh, saying, okay, and I think there are projects that I read got announced, for example, along the, uh, the uh, like near the Suez Canal or in, in Saudi Arabia by the Red Sea to produce such uh, either either green methanol or liquid ammonia to be used for the uh, as fuel for tankers uh, because ships do come from the east or the west passing through the Middle East. Uh, another application for hydrogen that's contemplated in uh, around the world, but primarily in Europe and the US, is as an energy storage for uh, to go hand in hand with renewable energy, which happen to be intermittent. So how do you store energy? overnight that's clean. Obviously batteries are one form, but hydrogen happens to be another competing form. Batteries are, you know, made much more progress. Uh, so I, I, at, a, at a high level, I agree with Phil that hydrogen today is a little bit overhyped. Uh, it does have some major technological uh, issues to be resolved. Uh, it, you cannot just simply put it in a pipeline. Uh, it does permeate through steel. Uh, it is energy content compared to natural gas or other fuels, the volume. I think safety, I'm seeing more reports recently that it can be made safe. Uh, there is the off-gassing uh, that can cause uh, major loss, like a battery can sit for almost a year and not lose much of its state of charge. But if you have a tank uh, with hydrogen, you have to be, to be kept really, really cold which means it takes a lot of um, parasitic energy to store it compared to just a battery that sits on a shelf somewhere. So storing energy in the form of hydrogen, I've seen estimates where you lose as high as 1% of that energy a day just to keep that low temperature. So it is not ideal yet for long-term storage. And the battle is on. You see companies in the U.S., uh, for example, I think Nikola has trucks that are based on hydrogen or batteries. You know, that debate is not settled yet. Elon Musk today, no, it is settled. It would be batteries. So hydrogen is still looking for its applications. Uh, we see even today some electric uh, planes. Uh, while everyone thought that's impossible and it's going to be only possible with hydrogen, but we see some electric train you know, planes. So it's hydrogen doesn't find its footings soon, uh, I think the train would have left the station on, on hydrogen. Well, thank you, because that's that's particularly interesting. And it, it actually is something I'd, I'd kind of like to follow up with a, a question of, of, of uh, my own for either of you, which is that 
Um, you know, it seems, and you, you may have kind of answered this already, but it seems like a lot of the strategies and, and projects that we've seen pop up around the region so far, um, particularly in the Gulf, but you, have, you, know, you mentioned Egypt as well, are, are kind of geared towards exports. And we don't really see much in, in the way of interest in domestic use for a lot of this hydrogen. Um, what, what do you think will eventually change that? Or is it just that this is something that is being looked at as a way of kind of making up for, you know, potentially smaller oil exports in the future for now? Um, it's, it's kind of an off-the-cuff question, so either of you can take that how you want. But, um, you know, it, it, it is something that as, as we, we, we continue to observe, this is something that definitely stands out. So I'm certainly interested in your thoughts there. We, we've done the techno-economic analyses on um, uh, what, what we call firm power. Effectively, and, and I'll speak to the power sector, Jill can speak to, to others if you wish, uh, but the, most of the applications that we're, we're seeing today in the US, aside from industry, I'm, I'm more involved in the power sector, is that hydrogen as a complement to renewable energy, to firm up that energy so you can have it reliably 24-7. But when you look at the techno-economic analyses that you'll find today that renewable energy, wind or solar, coupled with energy uh, storage in the form of chemistry, like lithium-ion, for example, does uh, beat the economics of using hydrogen for storage. And frankly, there are clever ways of using what's called long-term storage, even using chemistry. And so uh, I, I really don't see hydrogen uh, as, especially like, it, let's say, in the, in the economies in the Middle East. Uh, you mentioned Morocco. To me, a country like Morocco has fantastic wind and solar resources. They will need a lot of capital because wind or solar, you pay for the equipment up front. There's no fuel cost. And, and so kind of to get the levelized cost of energy, it's a major upfront investment, <laughs> but the unit economics are in place and the payback is in place. So you'll find international investors who are willing to come in and fund that upfront investment. So batteries, in my opinion, uh, have, will win, have already won in, man, in many of the applications where hydrogen was meant to be. Transportation is one, firming renewables is another. And so, again, the areas where that hydrogen can, can have a viable uh, play, I, I think the international shipping, uh, you know, marine shipping, uh, is a very interesting one. And I think the Middle East is doing the right thing, being a hub or, or a pathway for international ships. Uh, I don't know if they have the time to stop and refuel, but that's a very interesting and practical application. Yeah, and maybe I'll just, uh, I mean, I, I, I agree with that. I think the domestic market for hydrogen, if that's what you're asking about, Colby, um, is going to be very limited in that region just because alternatives, both clean and fossil, are so abundant and relatively affordable. Um, but so what 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 the really the focus is is on export. Um, I think Shab brought up some really interesting points about the fundamental and underlying competition between direct delivery of clean electricity from renewable sources. Uh, and electricity uh, in uh, direct use of electricity in applications rather than rather than hydrogen. Uh, I think that that I mean perhaps not competition, but that uh, 
cost differential and what those markets look like in various applications going forward um, is going to be is going to be really important. Um, and, and in terms of uh, transporting renewable energy, uh, the let's say competition or direct electricity alternative is expanding. Uh, high voltage DC, HVDC, long distance transmission, uh, both between countries, between continents, undersea cables, these kinds of power grid integration uh, that is going to, A, have to develop in order to access those kind of remote areas where renewable energy uh, is particularly uh, viable and to bring back the Moroccan example, where a lot of that extremely good wind potential exists is in the far south of the country. And so building up HVDC infrastructure within Morocco to bring it to the north and eventually to Europe um, is a much more efficient way to get clean energy into the European market uh, than exporting it, for example, in the form of hydrogen. That being said, as these markets develop and as demand uh, increases in places exactly, perhaps like shipping, perhaps like uh, the development of, of green steel, green cement, and other industrial purposes, uh, it, it, it does position the Middle East extremely well to serve as a hub for production and export of that resource. Um, so it's, uh, it, it's a market that's still developing, it's still relatively small, uh, and the key is going to, for, for demand, is going to be uh, what is, the, again, the cost differential between that and directly delivered electricity, uh, and, uh, and where are those places where electricity is just not a feasible option? Shahab mentioned aviation. Electric airplanes are great for very small seaters. We're never going to see clean energy uh, jumbo jets uh, until we start to, uh, I mean, until, you know, at least 10, 15, 20 years out where hydrogen might be uh, part of the solution. So, um, so there are those applications, again, that are often decades away uh, that might come closer with concerted policy. And clearly there's a lot of effort to do that, but we have to be realistic. And I think that that difference in how realistic uh, uh, the role hydrogen will play, the difference in opinion, uh, is as evident as in uh, debates over the G20 communiques, uh, which show a company, a country like Japan, putting it very much at the center of, uh, uh, putting it very much at the center of the discussion, uh, and other G20 partners, European and North American partners, watering down that language and trying to curb uh, expectations about how big this market will really be in especially the medium short and medium term so uh going to another one of these these audience questions here that i think links well with with the hydrogen topic but is really kind of um built it out a bit in, into the the political economy of the issue um, it reads the GCC countries, particularly KSA, UAE, and Oman, seem to be moving aggressively into exporting clean energy as green hydrogen. Um, can their economies and governments handle this transition? And do they expect the profit margins for clean energy exports to be on par uh, with petroleum? Uh, example, high enough to sustain the costs of welfare states with break-even costs for oil well above $50 a barrel today. Um, so, I, I mean, I think that the idea there is really the question of, of you know, to, to what extent are, are hydrogen exports replacing oil exports, which is, is a fairly easy question. Um, but maybe some of the, the, the more granular aspects of how um, that kind of a shift in the, in, in the revenue issue might impact, um, you know, not, not only kind of the social contract, but actually the ability to, um, to kind of fund the transition efforts. 
Um, you know, either either you can start wherever you'd like with that one. I think there's a, a range of ways to address that. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it to you. Yeah, so no, I, I don't think uh, the export of hydrogen will ever catch up to historic levels of petroleum exports. And uh, we have to think about why is hydrogen being in demand uh, in economies like in Europe or the US? Uh, it is in demand because of the energy transition is to decarbonize fuel. Uh, well, so when the world had only one means of um, creating energy through fossil fuels, um, you needed the supply of fossil fuels, which existed in some geographical areas around the world. Today, to generate hydrogen, Morocco, with its solar and wind resources, can be a major exporter of hydrogen. Same with Spain. Um, same with many other countries. Jordan can be, uh, and, and so, so that geographical kind of mineral concentration is not true anymore. And thus, that monopoly or that differentiation or unfair advantage of having hydrocarbon in the ground in your inside your borders is not true anymore because you can any country i'm not saying northern european but even in northern europe you can use hydropower you can use wind power you can use wave energy produce hydrogen so the competition for hydrogen production is far greater than the competition 20, 30, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, for exporting petroleum, which required that you would have those deposits. And so that's a fundamental trend in terms of dominating a hydrogen export market uh, or being uh, you know, the, the kind of the lead entity or country uh, in that regard. So I, will, I don't ever expect hydrogen exports to be anywhere near the levels that we saw historically when it came to petroleum exports. Yeah, I would I would certainly agree with that, especially in the major oil exporting countries uh, in the GCC. Um, there's just the, the, the market is the, the market is not as big. The profit margins are slimmer, at least for uh, in, in the immediate term. Um, and I don't think those countries, uh, and particularly Saudi Arabia, are you know, looking to move away from oil uh, anytime soon. I mean, as I mentioned, you know, they're expanding their uh, oil production capacity. It's going to be expanded by something like a million barrels per day uh, within a couple of years. Uh, there's massive investments that are going in to uh, expand production and capacity uh, for oil. They see it as a major part of the energy economy going forward. And as headwinds to investment in oil projects in OECD and Western countries increase both because of cost issues, higher, more expensive money, uh, and, uh, and in places like the US and shale oil, uh, difficulty to attract capital given uh, uh, the riskiness of those investments and, and, and investors being burned over the last couple of years, uh, as well as ESG and other environmental restrictions uh, on oil production and, and, and oil planning. Uh, it means that you know, the Gulf region is going to, uh, and OPEC is going to take up a, a bigger and bigger part of a potentially shrinking pie, potentially shrinking, but not for another maybe 10 years, uh, but they're going to create, they're going to be uh, holding a, 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 a much larger part of the, of the, uh, of the market. Um, and I don't think that they have any, uh, 
qualms are, I mean, they're pretty upfront uh, about their expectations that oil will continue to play a key role. That being said, again, over the long term, the writing is on the wall for oil in the sense that it's going to uh, start to potentially decline in demand. It already has been declining uh, pretty seriously uh, in the OECD countries, in Europe and in the US. Uh, all of the demand growth uh, is coming out of Asia. So it's going to have to depend on what are the policies in place in Asia. Uh, we talked about slowing Chinese growth, but there's going to be booming Indian growth uh, over the next 10 to 15 years. So uh, that's really going to decide the future of oil. Oil isn't going to be dead tomorrow by any means, and hydrogen certainly isn't going to take its place. No, certainly. And I mean, I, I think the fact that um, NOCs are, are really the ones leading upstream investment in the, the last year or so are pretty good evidence of, of where the sentiment is on that. Um, okay, so you know maybe we can move away from from the hydrogen talk a bit. Um, a couple other questions that came through that I, I thought were interesting here. Um, question about the role of energy with regard to water supply in the Middle East and North Africa. It says there's lots of water needed for production from some of these newer energy sources. What about energy for desalination? Um, that, that's an interesting one because I mean it, it, it seemed like for a little while there was a bit more talk of renewable desalination. Um, it feels like we hear less of it now, but um, I don't know, maybe that's just because I'm not paying close enough attention. So Shahab, maybe that's a, a, a good place for you to start there. Yeah, sure. I think, uh, and, and Phil alluded to this earlier, that the uh, local consumption of energy in even oil producing countries had gotten to a point where sometimes it's not sustainable. And so water production is one, agriculture, industrial uses, uh, and so on. Um, the, uh, we know the most dominant technology today for desalination is using a mechanical method in the form of reverse osmosis as compared to the MSF thermal process, which is much more energy intensive. But the driver for uh, our road versus osmosis is electricity for these high pressure pumps. And like Phil mentioned earlier, uh, we see that in, in the Middle East uh, in general, that electricity production through solar energy is very attractive, very competitive. So I think uh, that's a sector that holds great promise in terms of being electrified uh, through renewable energy and uh, for you know, making it more sustainable and frankly, potentially expanding the production at a lower cost uh, because burning liquid fuels for electricity generation is kind of the last application you wanna go to. It is not the right one economically, environmentally and otherwise. Uh, so uh, electricity water production with renewables is a real application, it's a viable one and it's a great opportunity uh, in the Middle East. Uh, yeah, I would uh, piggyback on that. I think that the technologies to uh, engage in desalin uh, desalination and power desalination um, have been developing uh, rapidly. So there are some major projects uh, in the Middle East. I'm thinking particularly uh, the French company Veolia working uh, at NEOM uh, to engage in a massive reverse osmosis plant uh, powered by solar power which I think is slated to come online something like 2025, um, I think is going to be a, a good uh, uh, demonstration of that technology, uh, which hadn't been the case uh, a few years ago, uh, because let's remember that 
renewable energy and especially solar power is uh, in principle and has been for a long time a massive user of water, not just in the production of solar panels, but then also uh, in their in their operation. Again, technologies have been coming on board for solar power in the Middle East that are dust resistant, low water. Again, I think Shihab would know a little bit more about this. Uh, you mentioned Shihab's uh, 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 role in uh, providing solar power at the Saudi Aramco headquarters, which is a place where I also worked. Uh, and I remember in some of those early trials, there was a real question about what the final balance is between uh, energy, which is used to desalinate the water, which then cleans the panels, which then generate energy, and what is the final net benefit, uh, and it does it sort of balance out. Uh, I think we're going beyond that at this point. Uh, but the other technologies which have been touted as particularly good in the desalination area are things like nuclear. Uh, and so as we look forward to uh, not just the expansion of uh, light water reactors and large nuclear projects uh, in places like the UAE, but also the potential for small modular reactors, again, several years away still, but something like desalinization is one of those great potential applications for small uh, modular reactors. So there are a few options, but uh, this, again, the technology deployments and demonstrations that we're seeing right now for renewable generated reverse osmosis are extremely promising. Uh, and that uh, concern about the balance uh, uh, for the energy production that we were feeling maybe seven years ago, I think is uh, is is uh, less and less of the case. All right. Well, thanks for the comment on the uh, the small modular reactors too, because that that answers another one of the questions that we we had come up, which is a, a particularly interesting one. Um, we're we're sort of getting into the last uh, last stretch of our time here. Um, but you know what we've seen kind of in common with a lot of the um, you know the, the initiatives and the, the projects that we're talking about is that um, particularly in the Gulf, but in some other places as well, a lot of regional governments are kind of marshalling this ever greater number of um, of state resources to tackle the transition. And and question that I wanted to to pose to both of you guys is is something we've probably heard before in a in a, in a much broader way, but. You know, what are the risks, if any, that where these kinds of, of national champions, so to speak, are getting involved, whether that's, you know, an aqua power or a mustar, um, you know, a sovereign wealth fund directly or indirectly or even an NOC? I mean, what's the risk that they're kind of crowding out this space to an extent that either, you know, I mean, not just local private sector firms, but foreign investors that a lot of these countries have been looking to attract? Um, start to encounter difficulty operating in, in that kind of a space. I mean, maybe that's something we could 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 get some comment on here because it it comes up a lot as a potential challenge, but it it feels like it it the discussion tends to stop there. Um, so maybe that's uh, something we could could mull over for a bit as well. Yeah, I'm um, oh, sorry, Shihab, please go first. Yeah, please. Uh, so you, I, I I think that is an issue. I mean, you mentioned Aqua Power as a national champion. Let's remember that Aquapower uh, was an independent company at the forefront of this technology, continues to produce literally some of the lowest cost renewable energy um, and, and provide some of the lowest cost bids in projects, not only in Saudi Arabia, but also across, uh, across the Middle East and North Africa. Um, and it was only since it was 
40% stake was acquired by the uh, Saudi public investment fund, the PIF, uh, has it become a quote unquote national champion. And this uh, strategy is something we've seen a lot across a lot of different uh, companies uh, in the region. I'm thinking also about things like Kareem and others uh, where successful private uh, uh, sector companies have then been gobbled up. The question is, uh, do they then uh, remain as competitive uh, and, or, or sorry, do they remain so competitive that they then crowd out uh, competition within the region? Uh, I think that's something that's, that's worth posing. Uh, but overall, uh, if we look at how petrodollars and oil revenue is being used and recycled through the system, that has also changed significantly in the region. So if you go back uh, something like 10 to 15 years, the classic model was taking those petrodollars, putting them in Western and particularly American financial institutions and investing uh, in relatively low risk uh, uh, ventures. Uh, now we're seeing a more aggressive and more risk, uh, higher risk appetite in terms of that, uh, of, of where that money is going. Uh, so a much higher percentage going into equities and also into infrastructure investments uh, and into companies uh, like these that are investing in new technologies. So that public money will continue to flow. Uh, I think, uh, this, again, the strategy that's in, in place is not to flow only to those quote unquote national champions, but actually to seed uh, a, a whole ecosystem of uh, advanced energy companies within the region um, in order to, to grow that wider ecosystem as opposed to just funneling it into one national champion. Um, so uh, whether those investments pan out at the end, I think the goal anyway um, is to create a sustainable and viable wider ecosystem of technology in order to breed that competition and advance uh, the wider economy. And that's you know at the heart of some of these economic transformation uh, ambitions. Yeah, so um, in, in regard to that question, I, I actually uh, spoke with uh, Mohammed Ramahi, the CEO of Master, and uh, Mohammed Abunayan, the chairman and uh, founder of Aqua, uh, in preparation of my remarks at our previous event. Uh, these are two entities, two national champions that, frankly, have done a great job uh, in terms of showing what a perfect model in terms of being internationally competitive, but put capital to work, how to work with multinationals. And I think uh, that is a requirement. You see it in the U.S. with, you know, if you go back, you see uh, an AT&T, you see uh, a Google, you see a Yahoo, you see, you know, various, not necessarily national champions, but they de facto national champions in terms of a certain sector. Now, having said that, uh, making sure that they don't crowd out other participants, whether local or national, that's more of a policy uh, play for the regulators or for the officials rather than the, asking Aqua or Master not to be super competitive. And we see it, I mean, in the US, when there are, say, public bids, for example. Uh, many times they'll say, well, no single entity can get more than 5% or 10% of the supply. Uh, we see it with a company called Con Edison in New York City. They say, okay, we want so much of 
energy storage, but no single developer can come in with more than five megawatts per second. You understand the distribution level out of you know 15 or 50. So that is an easy fix to create an environment where the local economy is accepting and, and nurturing and allowing newer entrants to come in. And I think that's a that's a critical uh, requirement for the economy to flourish. And also to, uh, you never know who the next aqua is or the next master is. So by allowing entrepreneurs to uh, you know, flourish and be supported economically and otherwise, it's a key policy requirement if the economy were to be truly diversified. All right, great. Well, uh, thank you both, Shahab and Phil, for your um, your insights today. We covered a, a pretty wide range of topics, and I, I think we definitely uh, put a, a valuable discussion together. So um, thanks again to the National Council. Uh, thanks for everyone who joined. And, um, you know, of course, thanks for listening and um, have a great weekend. Thanks, Colby. Thank you for having us.